everybody. Welcome. My name is Beth Fisher Yoshida, and I am a professor of practice at Columbia University in the city of New York. And I also am an author and a consultant coach. And this is the new, new power, sorry, new story, new power podcast based on some of my book, new story, new power, a woman's guide to negotiation. And I have with me today, which I'm very excited about a friend of mine, Anna Gonzalez. And I met Anna probably four or five years ago when she came to Columbia University as an Obama scholar during 2018-2019. And I knew she also had an organization called FEM, but she's in a new role now. So I'm going to ask Anna to introduce herself a little bit, and then we'll get started. Thank you. So Anna, take it away. Hi, Beth. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very glad to be here. I'm missing Columbia very much but I'm very happy to be in my work in Cartagena. So after the program, I decided to join government of the city of Cartagena in Colombia. And I was there for a couple of years as the international uh, cooperation, uh, like senior advisor to the mayor. And then last year I uh, got the role of the security and human rights Secretary of the Mayor. So it's a very exciting, very challenging job, um, but I'm, I'm I'm very happy to serve the city uh, and to serve also the tourists that come to the city. Wow, that's so great. Yes. Yeah. So can you tell a little bit more about um, some of the high points? Like what was it that stimulated you when you returned from being an Obama scholar to shift your career from, I guess, the nonprofit world into the world of government? Okay, well, definitely the Obama scholars had a very uh, strong impact. And most of the discourse mm -hmm. uh, from the Obama workshops and most of the things that they said would definitely lead you to uh, taking a job in government. I mean, to public service. So at, at the beginning and for many years, I, had, I hadn't worked in the, in the public service before because I thought there's a lot of corruption. It's very complicated. It's very legal oriented. So I, I always felt that this wasn't for me. But after the Obama program, well, one of the big things that came from speaking to all these Obama government officials was how responsible uh, we were as citizens to be able to join government and improve it. And so when my boss, Mayor Dow, uh, won office, he was, he's an outsider, a very, like a non-traditional politician with a very strong fight against corruption. So I felt identified and I said, well, I think the universe is giving me a message and I decided to join his government. Super, thank you so much. So. Let's take a step back and um, let's talk a little bit about your work with FEM, because then I think that's a super framing and of what you've done and how you've shifted what you've done inside of there to come up with, I think, a really powerful plan. So I really am looking at a little bit about, tell us a little bit about the organization and what's caused you to start it and the kind of work you're doing. And I also want to think about negotiation. What did you need to negotiate? How did you negotiate? And how are you also preparing the women who you're working with to negotiate for themselves as well? So if you can just tell a little bit about that, that would be great. 
Okay, so two questions. One about the context uh, of FEM. Like FEM uh, is a nonprofit organization that works with Afro and indigenous communities in the region where Cartagena is. We spent 10 years serving uh, very vulnerable communities in rural areas to help them file their land solicitation. Uh, they, Colombia is one of the least uh, equally distributed countries in the world in terms of land property. And we have great legislation in favor of ethnic communities, but most of those ethnic communities are so excluded that they don't even know. So that was like the main objective of my organization to inform them about their rights, to help them develop all these, like for you and me, it would be technically, like, it would have a little bit of difficulty, a level of difficulty, but we could do the land solicitation processes ourselves. But if you never went to university, didn't know, didn't have access to internet, didn't have a computer, well, the land solicitation process becomes more difficult. So that's exactly what FEM tried to do through participatory approaches with the communities in which we learned a lot and we had a lot of volunteers come in, uh, very exciting. And with a very interesting uh, product because we've uh, helped uh, 16,000 families protect their land ownership. So that was FEM, that was my background. So I know the region very well. I know the problems of inequality in the region very well and I could bring that into the public service. And in terms of negotiation, I think a few things are key. Like part of the, the, the value of the legislation in Colombia in favor of ethnic communities is that it leverages the capacity of the communities to uh, amplify their negotiation possibilities. So if you're an Afro community in Colombia, you have the right to previous consultation where, lists, where you stand up and say, wait, you cannot do this project because it's going to impact our water sources or it's going to impact our fisheries or it's going to impact our children. And it gives them uh, negotiation capacities. And so training them in these negotiation capacities and training them in how to better stand in these conversations when, especially because there's a lot of inequality in that conversation. So there's a very, a professional high level consulta consultant with a, a person that never finished school negotiating, for example, about water rights. So, so we gave these communities leverage. We gave them the capacity also to have arguments. That's why we brought in so many volunteers because international volunteers enhance the technical capacity of the communities because otherwise they would have to be left with the story of the company or of the project owner instead of having some technical um, challenging of those hypotheses that they presented. So I think negotiation has been core, not only to FEM, but also to my current role. Like, so security, if you understand it correctly, is basically a negotiation process. So my office has to take charge of ethnic communities. It also has to take uh, charge of uh, protest, protest demonstrations and all these things. Like, So the reason why my office exists is to protect local democracy in the biggest sense, like the, the political rights to representation, to participation, and to enhance the possibility of communities to actually get uh, their voice heard. So that's challenging because government means that it's people like breaking and 
in, in, in stop a road, for example, the motorcyclists. Um, some of the motorcyclists in Colombia are illegal because they can't carry passengers. But many of the most impoverished communities, that's the only job that's available for them. So you really have to have and enhance your negotiation capacities and your possibilities. And it's been very, very interesting. I myself thought I wasn't a very good negotiator. In Colombia, I learned a few elements that I've used frequently in these negotiations, including the app of making conflict work. Like literally this book is now one of my bedside books <laughs> because I use it a lot and how to use conflict in your favor and not only against you. That's great. So a couple of points I want to bring out and highlight of what you just talked about. It sounds like one common theme that you've mentioned across the board there is that when you have information, when you're informed about your situation, informed about the bigger picture, you and the communities you're working with, it sort of balances to some degree the negotiation itself because it started as a super unbalanced power dynamic. And actually, you know, power distribution and power dynamics are quite common. What you've described is really an exacerbated example of it when people really don't have the information. Even without uh, formal education or higher education, people can still be informed and can still develop the skills to advocate for themselves, which is what you're talking about in the negotiation. And I'm glad to see that the Academy, Columbia University, informed you in making conflict work. So that's great. So then in what ways, if any, does either your negotiation preparation or the kinds of negotiations you're in, how you show up in a negotiation, how has it shifted when your role has shifted from being the head of a, a nonprofit organization, dealing with communities, dealing with bureaucracy, and now that you're in the government, dealing with communities, so you're in a different place? Definitely. So that's one of the most incredible learning experiences I've had. And it has definitely made me a better, I think that that has made my leadership shift in quite a few senses. Because now I feel that when you're only in the nonprofit sector and you don't really know the inside of government, you're asking for things that are basically impossible. And that makes the advance of society more difficult. If we knew more when we are in nonprofit organizations or when we're mobilizing, if we knew more about the functioning of the state itself, then we would be more um, successful in our requests and our asks. Like that's one of my biggest lessons. And that comes precisely because first I always came, I, I always put the pressure. I came from the non, uh, like the civic uh, environment. And I put the pressure on government to get like my incidents done in, in public policy. Like, how do you make it shift towards the rights of Afro communities? How do you make these people that don't know that these people have rights? How do you make them shift? How do you make them shift? And you're always trying to put pressure on them and you're putting pressure on them legally. You're putting pressure on them by mobilizing. And so it, it's always a very strong, uh, like you negotiate from protest, demonstration, always very strong because the state you feel that it doesn't really listen to you. When you're on the, at the other side, so I think the type of person in government that I am is a very open one and I go to the community to speak and to allow them to speak 
and to hear them. And because I come from a participatory background, I, I know like it's part of my philosophy that communities know better than you. Like they're the ones that live there. They're the ones that know. So I try to bring that to the table, but it not always has been easy. Like I have to recognize that um, uh, sometimes uh, you require, for example, a strong legal knowledge that I, I lack. Like you really need your technicalities there. And, and so one of the things that has been really challenging has been learning to negotiate in a team. See what I mean? Because it's when you're when your negotiation is just putting pressure and you it's 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 easy to uh, create a plan and just move forward on it <clears throat> but when you're on a table and you have like three or four people that are on your side trying to negotiate the communication itself what to give them how to succeed is very challenging and has been very 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 interesting i think that those are the things that um i i really have learned from negotiation processes now and also that <clears throat> sometimes when you are being used and manipulated negotiation is not possible if that has been one of the things that for me has been tough to accept but sometimes the only thing you can do is just stand up and leave so i just want to touch on the uh, teamwork part because of course i always advocate for preparation before a negotiation for lots of different things to clarify for yourself what's important to try to understand what's important for the other person to understand the context the bigger picture and also to think about different options so you were mentioning before that when you're in the nonprofit it was more about a protest to that's how you negotiated right if it was negotiation and then now you're on the other side so it's really nice that you had a chance to see both sides it maybe would benefit all of us if a lot of us did see more than one side which is the whole idea about holding different perspectives. So going back to the team, which is a challenge, right? Because each person shows up in a different way. What are the ways that you've overcome that challenge or have you? Like what are the strategies or the things that you do to be more effective as a team negotiator? Okay, so definitely there's preparation. Like you definitely need to sit with your team before and understand what are your minimums, right? Like those have to be pre-established uh, to make sure that you're not violating uh, like the raw uh, conversation and, and what people cannot do. The second thing that has been really hard and I think like you have to be very precise in language to be able to accomplish this is to control the capacity of your team not to create expectations because language is very malleable. So if you understand um, some level of compromise in one sense and another person understands it or interprets what you said in a little bit different sense, that can mean the world in the negotiation process. That interpretation of the words can mean too much for one, for one like in, in your same team. So you have to be ultra precise when you're defining those minimums and those standards and those criteria to make sure that you don't make mistakes. Like we've fallen to that mistake a few times. Like for example, to give you a, like a concrete example of this is, so the secretary of infrastructure says, we are almost going to pave that road. It's a matter of weeks, okay? And so somebody interprets that he said, it's going to happen in a couple of weeks, right? 
when the Secretary of Infrastructure was thinking that it was going to be fast, he was probably thinking six or seven weeks because that's what speed means to him. Something speedy is six weeks away, right? But the other person is thinking, oh, well, a matter of weeks. If it had been a month, he would have said a month. So it's going to be half a month, two weeks. And he goes out to the community and says, we'll be ready in two weeks. And I have a demonstration in three weeks. Because the language, the way you explain, the way the team sets up has to be extremely precise. That, that Those are the, the things. And then the other thing is, my role as a Secretary of Interior is to create the teams for negotiation. So usually I don't, I'm not the one that paves the roads. I'm not the one that builds the water or sewage system, but I have to bring them to the table. So what I think has worked really well is that I side with the communities and, and, and my team, like the, the other secretaries of the government tell, like start committing with me because communities feel that I am representing them. I feel that has been a very good strategy. Like once, because the other way, it means that it's the communities opposed to the government. But as soon as I side with the communities and start saying, hey, that's taking too long. I mean, why don't we do it fast? Is there anything we can do to make it faster? That people start thinking of government differently as a whole. And then just the thing of shifting like the timeframes or anything, but there's stop this idea of having like the full opposition against us. That has worked really well. Great, great. So it's that's a tricky role, right, to be on both sides, but at least they feel that you're there advocating for them and with a strong voice. So I, I know you know this, and from my own experience with communication, regardless of how precise and how careful you think you are, there's always an opportunity for a miscommunication. So because I also strongly advocate for a strong preparation phase in negotiation, I also advocate for a post-negotiation phase as well, because you want to follow up to make sure that everybody who walked away from that negotiation has a shared understanding of what happened, what was committed to, what was agreed upon. So what are some of the things you do after people are at the table negotiating to follow up to ensure that there is that shared understanding? Okay, two strategies there. One is we definitely have to keep written reports of what was negotiated. And in those most difficult negotiations, they're always read out publicly during the negotiation to make sure that we are interpreting the same thing on both sides. Then we also have a system called Trazador de Compromisos. So it's um, it's a little system that we created in Airtable. So it's published, published on our webpage where all our commitments are set up. It's good for the communities so that they see that their commitments are still alive and people are working on them. And it's also good for these, uh, like with my colleagues, because that way they know and they don't forget what they committed to in the different tables that we go to. And so I, I, I really think it's an instrument not only for transparency, but also for credibility. Like, and it also, like the way we created it, it gives you time alarms. Like it tells you, hey, this one's taking too long. And, and then I have a person in my team that is in charge exactly of just following up on all those commitments to make sure that they get fulfilled. Because it's easy to go, when you're in government, it's very easy to go demagogue. 
very easy, right? People start promising and promising and promising. And I hate that, you know, because I think it's because I was on the other side and I, I felt that to ethnic communities, people had promised for 400 years and not done anything. So that comes from like, from where I come from. I hate it when people promise. I believe that it's easier to tell people the truth, even if it's a hard truth. But I think, and that should be an ethics of the public sector. It isn't. So this is also a way to prevent uh, demagogues because that's also, it's very easy for uh, for a public servant to just think, I don't want to be unpopular. I want to be in the press as the good guy. I don't want to say the bad things, right? So sometimes you have to be able to have the courage to say, I can't do it or, and, and take the communities this like discomfort and the protest. We're, every government is limited. So that has to be in, in, the, in your repertoire of, the, of responses. Yeah, so when you're in the moment, you know, you get all caught up in things and you're thinking about image and relationships and all that. So maybe you overpromise. You mentioned um, that it's really nice that you put things on the website because people have different ways of remembering or understanding. And so seeing it in writing is a different kind of connection with what happens. So you mentioned credibility and transparency. And I also wanted to add in accountability because now it's out there, it's in the public, right? Everybody's being held accountable for what was said, what was promised and so on from all sides, because maybe the community also promised to do something, to agree to something, to prepare, whatever it is. So one of my questions was going to be, which I see you're already answering, um, how do you overcome some of the challenges? And part of you were talking about is clear communication, transparency, and also how you support the community. So it's not adversarial. You know, I'm curious then, as you're thinking about setting up the negotiation process, right, um, a traditional kind of male oriented way would be where there's a table and people sit on opposite sides of the table. And that's kind of a traditional way we've been doing negotiation for many years. But since you're in there and you're also conscious of power imbalances, what do you think about and what do you do to prepare the context or the environment for the negotiation to happen so people are comfortable showing up in different ways? So that question has two different answers. It's really interesting because different I think answers also, <laughs> Right. I mean, it also depends on the role and also depends very much on the message you want to give. So one of the strongest negotiations, the most difficult one I've had is with the entertainment sector in the city because they want to have like a 24 hour functioning noise all night long. They want to sell alcohol all night long. And we've had safety issues that are associated with alcohol and drug consumption. We have prostitution in the city. So we need to team up and think how we're going to solve it together. And so I, in, that, in that negotiation, I've used power dynamics very consciously of what is the message I give. Like, how who comes with me to the table and how I sit at the table, like to give the message, okay, she's the boss, <laughs> right? Because you have to use these kinds of uh, strategies also to enhance the possibility of, uh, of being stronger. Like we've taken some solid measures and to, to defend those measures. So you, you sometimes have to act it out. It, it, it's, it's interesting. Then again, when I'm working with communities in very vulnerable areas that need another, I, there, I would never use that language. 
there I use completely different languages. Like I sit with them, I, I, I take the table away, I go to their houses at night in where they feel comfortable. And it's more of a conversation. And I, I don't speak at the beginning, but at the end, so that I, they, they make sure that they're getting their message through and then, right? So it depends. If there's a lot of role playing involved, that, that's, some, that's a discovery for me because obviously power is also a, a sort of performance, right? I'm, I'm the same person that was in Colombia five years ago. Nothing has really changed there except those needed performances to get the things that you need to get done. It's really interesting you said that because sometimes people shy away from power or try to control it or own it. And what you're saying is power as performance, which is wonderful, nice expression. And also that you use it differently. And that means you show up in your role differently, but it's all about the preparation, right? Knowing your audience is really important because you're talking about this kind of entertainment industry versus somebody in the community. And so how you show up, how you are in relationship to that other party is critical and, and you get there by not only your communication, but also how you use power and even the physical setup of the environment is so critical from having this very power dynamic, a formal negotiation to just being with somebody in their house and laughing and sitting on their sofa and things like that. Really wonderful. So if you were going to make some recommendations, some tips for people about things to consider from your own experience or or something, even if you haven't mastered it yet, but something you're thinking about, what are some tips that you have about, just in general, about negotiation? Okay, okay. so let's see. Um, definitely one of the, the big tips is don't get trapped in, in a role. Like you don't always have to negotiate with the same role. Like I think one of the things that most functions, I, I, I've told this to my team very many times, like, you have to protect your, the emotional variety that you have within your personality. Because sometimes you're going to need to be very subtle and very sweet and very cunning and very, yeah. Sometimes you're going to have to be very like the professional type. Okay? Sometimes you're going to have to be more aggressive, right? Um, and, some, and, and I think in that sense, women are better um, are better served by a bigger repertoire of emotional if, if possibilities. Like men can only be manly or masculine. That those are the roles that they are allowed, which means that in a negotiation, it's going to be a, a little bit harder. But women are allowed uh, other ways and you shouldn't be trapped in any of these. Like, I mean, always understand and recognize that there's a whole variety of possibilities that you can use emotionally to sit and to put yourself into the conversation. That's my first tip. The second one is, um, yeah, try to break predictability. Like when I see very aggressive uh, negotiators coming to me, I always think what is the thing that would surprise them the most that I said? And I try to frame a way in which I can say it so that I take them totally off guard. Once they're off guard, then like we can go, doesn't always work, it's not always possible, but I always do think what would surprise these people, right? So I did it with the motorcyclist. So there's 80,000 motorcycle uh, drivers in Cartagena, so they can block the city. And they are considered socially to be very aggressive and violent. 
And so it could have become, like we actually in my team called it motorcycle pandemonium because we didn't know what was going to happen. So it, it could have gone dangerous and fire and like a big havoc. And so that's one of the instances where I use this. I said like, what do they not expect me to say? And the thing that they didn't want, they did, probably didn't expect me to say was, I want to help you become legal, right? And so that's what I said. I want to help you become legal. Let's write a letter together. Let's talk to the Ministry of Transport, who's the one that makes the decision about your legalization. And it totally turned the balance. It took them off balance immediately and they became part of my team. <laughs> See what I mean? It, it totally narrowed their possibilities to, and I told them, you need to help me. So and we actually filed a few law, like a decrees that would have been impossible to file if they didn't understand that we were working towards legalization. So it works. You have, you have to try to find a way in which this can be useful. And then the third tip that I would use is really understand the limits, like really understand the limits of the negotiation, the minimums, the maximums, and make sure that the people around you understand them too, in terms of the, that precision and that, like the awkwardness of communication. Make sure that you understand it and you're able to communicate it in the same way you understand it. I think those are the three key things that I have to keep in mind to be successful. Not always successful, but I, I do my best. That's great. I'm really, I'm just going to recap the highlights here. So one is that you're saying that women have an advantage because they can tap into an emotional variety. They can have quite a range and don't feel like you have to stay stuck in the same limited one or two emotions, but really explore the range. And it's very situational, it's very relational. And even in the course probably of one negotiation, you can go here to there and back again, right? Depending on what's happened. So one is the emotional variation that's there. Mm -hmm. The second is that element of surprise. So somebody comes in all solid and so you're putting in like a crack, right? You're putting a little crack in there and that's how you're wedging in. And what you did beautifully in that example you illustrated with the motorcycle drivers is you said, and you took away that adversarial encounter and you said, we're together in this, we're a team, let's go forward. And that's what totally shook them from being against to being with you. Okay, help me, how are we gonna do this together? And then the third thing is really knowing the range as well as what is, what's the minimum and the maximum? What's the limit? You know, and sometimes people feel limited. Oh, I have all these constraints. But the reality is when you know the range, that's where you put your energy. Don't go outside the range to things that are not possible. But inside of that constraint is also an opportunity for creativity, right? Which was not there. So that's wonderful. And I do want to ask another question, and that would be, what was it or what tip do you have for people? I mean, these tips could work, but what other tip might you have if somebody is transitioning into a different role, a different career? So, you know, you become comfortable in who you are in one role, and now you might be shifting to a different type of role, which may or may not be similar. Any tips there on how to negotiate your transition for yourself? Well, as well? well um, certainly you have to be clear then it's not the minimums and the maximums of your negotiation, but the minimums and the maximums of yourself, what you want and who you are. Like one of the things that I do my best here not to lose is my own priorities, my own values. Like this is a very different role from FEM. The size of the organization FEM was, like I, I led, the, the biggest workshop we had was 35 people. 
So that was the biggest team of people I led. Now I have, I lead 500 people, right? So the budget is totally different. The role is completely different. So I have to think all the time, how do I not lose the values I had when I was in PEM? And I always like go back to that. That those minimums and maximums, I think that's what um what that the Obamas called values-based leadership. And I always remember this idea that I love, and I think it's an element of like it gives you just remember this is the moral compass. The moral compass. Where is your moral compass? So establish it, the moral compass, and always keep on looking at it, right? Don't don't leave it in your pocket. Just keep on looking at the moral compass. I think that's the tip for any transition. Like once you know that, you can go anywhere. And I didn't say this. This was told. That's one of the things that I most remember that Obama told us. He said, I don't go into institutions and become the institutions. I make the institutions become like me, like taking my values. And I really heard that and I'm doing my best. I'm trying, it's not easy, it's not easy, but always remember who you are, why you do things and, and remember your moral compass. Now that's great. So two points I wanna pick out from what you were talking about is the idea that whatever you're compromising on, you're not compromising yourself. You're very clear to yourself about what your values are, what's important to you at the end of the day, that stays the same, that's a constant. But of course, you need that whole process of self-discovery to even know what your values are, because a lot of times we don't even know until they're violated. And then we say, oh, well, that was really important to me. So know your values. And then you're talking about having a framework that stays with you. And for you, it's the values-based leadership and the moral compass. So that's your guiding frame, right? No matter what happens, what's my moral compass? How do I show up in this to be the best person I can be, adding the best value I can be? That's really beautiful. So you've had so many wonderful, rich experiences and you shared so many fabulous insights with really specific examples, which I appreciated as well. Before we close, is there anything else you wanna add that I haven't asked about that you want to share or comment on? I think the questions have been wonderful and they had, I have, I always learn, love these interviews because they help me also. I never talk about this, right? So I never know what I, have discovered, but definitely what I would like to say is that definitely life is a discovery of yourself. And I had always considered myself to be a bad negotiator, especially because I always thought that I had a very strong personality and that would always give me handicaps. And then, so two things happened. One was definitely my learning process in Colombia with you guys. I mean, it was totally, changed and pivoted the way I understand negotiation and how it is used more, more than anything else. And then this experience as the, I am the main negotiator of the government, like all the negotiation processes go through me. And I would have never thought if, if you told me 10 years ago that this was going to be my role, I would have never thought I had the elements. So just trust the universe, it gives you things in order. So it gave me, first gave me Beth Yoshida and her team, and then it put me here. <laughs> so, you know, it is, you always say trust the process, right? Because you will be given what you're ready to handle and so on, but that's really beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Anna, and everybody, thank you so much for listening, and that will be a close. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
Hi, I wanted to bring up some of the points that Anna Maria Gonzalez raised when we were doing our podcast together. She said so many wonderful things. I just wanted to highlight two. So one of them is she talked about the wonderful way she was able to shift her perspective in a negotiation context, especially because she changed her role. So she went from being a community organizer and maybe criticizing the government in some ways because of their policies and so on, because they didn't mesh with what she would like and what she needed for the people she was protecting in her social advocacy. And then when she became a member of the municipal government, she saw a different perspective. She was able to see that, okay, the government is trying and has constraints that's not always obvious from the public or social activism lens, but she was able to see that. So she was able to have a foot in both worlds, which may have helped in some cases and then may have confused in others because she wished she could be on the other side coaching. But anyway, she did see uh, different perspectives and that was great. Another point she made that I thought is especially pertinent is about emotions. She did believe that women have a broader range of emotional variability and that we should utilize our emotions as much as possible and not get trapped in a role that, well, if I am a woman, I do this, and if I'm a woman, I don't do that, but really to utilize our emotional variability. And it kind of makes me think that the better you get to know yourself, the more self-awareness you have, the more you understand your own emotional context and your own emotional base and what centers you, what triggers you and so on. So it's really great to continue on that journey of self-discovery to understand how you can better use your emotions. Because remember, information is power. So more information you have about how you use your emotions, the more powerful you can be and use them effectively. So thank you. Please send some comments in. I look forward to engaging in further conversations with you and exploring negotiation further. Bye now. And that's our show. New Story, New Power is produced by Digitalistic Media. Beth Fisher Yoshida, our host, is also our executive producer. Digital production by Francine Molina. Our theme music is by Hermona. Special thanks to Ashley Hart. We'll be back with a brand new episode next month.